find a virtuous wife, for her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. She will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profit, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She extends her hands to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine, linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates where he, when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful today for your word and all you've given us in your word and revealed to us in your word concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the gift of forgiveness and the eternal life that you provided through the cross of Christ. Thank you that Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to go to that cross to take our guilt, our sin upon him, rise from the dead, and secure our victory, Father, so that we can know that someday to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But thank you, you tell us as well in John 10, that you've not only come to provide life, but to provide it more abundantly. And Father, we find true meaning and purpose for life in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, even here in your word is our scripture and reveals to us your definition of a, of a virtuous woman, a godly woman, Father. Thank you that you do give us instructions in all areas of life and practice. And Father, we pray today that you would prepare our hearts to be taught of you. Father, that we know it not only come before you in worship, but also in submissive spirits, Father, to your word, to your authority of your word that your word might be the basis of all life and practice. For, Father, we thank you that this book before us, this book we hold in our laps, is an eternal word. It's a living word. It's a powerful word. It's a word which will never pass away. And it's because a faithful and unchanging God stands behind it. So, Father, we need to understand it. We need to learn it. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit to reveal to us the deep things of God. And so be our teacher and guide today. And may we take the things we've learned and allow you to, to then incorporate them into our lives, that we might be the men and women that we ought to be. And Father, we pray for those who aren't with us today, Father, that you'd watch over them today, those who have special needs, Father, medical needs, uh, other trials and struggles they, that people may be facing, Father, we would commit them to your care and to your promises, that they might realize your present help and trouble, Father, we just would bring them before you. And Father, for VBS that is coming up <coughs> soon, Father, we pray that you prepare boys and girls to come hear the word of God, hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. You prepare the workers and help teachers and helpers, Father, that, that your word might speak to hearts and be used for your glory that week. And Father, we bring before you especially this morning too, um, uh, Luda, Tim and, Tim and Luda Smith, Luda's mother, Father, don't know her current condition, but in serious critical condition, Father, last I heard, at least, Father, we just pray that you would uphold her, her and the family 
especially at this time as well. And so, Father, we pray today as we approach your word, that not only here, but wherever your word is given out across this nation and world, that, you're, that it would go forth in simplicity and in clarity and in truth, and that we, your children, would respect it as your word, that we might hang upon your word, that we might desire to understand life through, thus saith the Lord. So be our teacher and guide, and may you be glorified in our service, and as we remember our Lord in the Lord's table today as well. In Jesus' name. Turn with me, if, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 6 to begin with this morning. Our passage of scripture reading this morning began with the idea of who could find a virtuous wife or a virtuous woman. And, you know, that's quite a, in God's definition we find, or demonstration we find there in Proverbs 31, is quite a contrast from what we find in the world today. Because we recognize today that that today's woman, I, today's idea of a woman in the world in which we live does not necessarily align with God's plan or design for women, wives, and mothers. And even at times our Christian model may not line up with what God establishes as, as his pattern, his desire for, for being a biblical Christian woman. And womanhood is definitely under attack. I mean, there are those in society today that won't even define what a woman is. It get, is getting so ridiculous today. And yet we find also women themselves seeking to assert independence from God's design and God's plan for women. And we need, to, we need to turn to the word of God, do we not, to, to see what God's pattern for a woman is, to see what God's model for a virtuous woman in for, is. For in Proverbs 30, 31, we find a woman who's very balanced in reality. We find a woman who is seeking to live a godly life and yet cares for her household, has a ministry to the poor and needy, has a business on the side, and yet focuses as well on her own appearance and looks. A very balanced woman. And, and, and thus we turn to the Word of God this morning for God's definition of what the life of a godly woman, wife, and mother ought to look like. And I wanted to start in Deuteronomy chapter 6 because this is a, a classic or a important, I should say, at least child-rearing passage in, here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We are we're told in verse 7 to teach these things diligently, diligently to our children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up and so on. And so we're told the importance of saturating our children with the word of God but there's a preface to this passage, and that starts in verse 6, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then these words you shall teach your children as the passage goes on. And it's not insignificant that this passage, this family passage on training children, begins with a person's relationship with the Lord. It begins with loving the Lord our God with all our heart, souls, and minds. It mean, and, 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 and what does it mean to love the Lord your God? It's, it's not necessarily simply an emotional overflow. That's kind of the world's view of love. It, love is really an attitude. It's, a love of, it's an attitude of commitment and priority. And it really means, in simple terms, that we put God first in our lives. We so love and appreciate and recognize who our God is that he has absolutely first place in our lives. 
And what, that, what occurs when that happens in our lives, when we put God first, is we begin to live for God sacrificially. Because if we're going to live for God, if we're going to put him first in our lives, that means we don't live for ourselves, and we live sacrificially for him, and then as well for others, rather than living for ourselves. And therefore, loving the Lord our God translates into living sacrificially for him, as we put him first in everything in life. It's also communicated then when we put his word first in our lives as the foundation of all life and practice. You know, we know in the scriptures that love, the love of God, is by nature sacrificial. That's how it's expressed. That's how it's lived out. That's the reality of it. And we have to go no further than think about the Lord Jesus Christ. And God so loved the world that he gave. Simple sentence, simple terms, but that's love in practice. Jesus came to give himself for your sins and mine's. That's what his love drove him to. That's how his love expressed itself. That's how God's love sh shone through to you and I, that Jesus took your place and mine on that cross, paying the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven and assured of eternal life. Think of the passage in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. We call it the love passage chapter. And in, really, in reality, all those attitudes described in that chapter, being patient, being kind, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping the best for people and all things, is a sacrificial love. It's about wanting to see the best in others. It's not a self-focused love. It's not a love that envies. It's a love that wants the best in others, a sacrificial love. In Philippians 2, we also have another passage that speaks of God's love and practice in our lives. And in that passage, that love is expressed in preferring others before ourselves and looking out for the, other, the interest of others. In John 15, where, Je where Jesus talks about the disciples' love for him, it's expressed with a willingness to be a fruit-bearing disciple, living for the Lord and keeping Jesus' commandments. And so wherever you see the love of God mentioned in the Scripture, it, it, it refers to sacrificial living, a life of service. But it all flowing from a love for God first, just as in our Deuteronomy 6 passage, a love for the Lord God first, as we put him first in our lives, we are then willing to live according to what he directs in our lives. And that's not always going to be convenient, by the way. You know, the love of God is not about supporting us in, all, in everything that we want to do. It's supporting our, it is supporting us in, in doing all that God wants us to do and how he wants us to live, and that's not always convenient. And there's no better way to communicate to our children the reality of Jesus Christ than to allow his love to, to make him the first priority in our lives. And that's not always going to be convenient when we put him first, is it? And our children need to learn that the world does not revolve around their little cribby, as we often treat them. We think that's godly parenting, but not at the expense of putting God first. In fact, there's value in seeing our children sacrifice for the sake of putting God first, whatever that might mean. Ask a missionary who drags his family halfway around the world. That's a tremendous sacrifice. But kids learn a tremendous lesson about the reality of God and his work here on the earth when a person is willing to put Christ first in their lives. When we cater to our children and make our schedules revolve completely around them, it just teaches them that the world revolves around them. It's all about me, baby. That's what our children, what the babies learn. And yet in reality, when we, are, when we love the Lord our God first, put him first, it may not always be comfortable and convenient, but it will be a tremendous blessing in our lives as families, we grow to serve the Lord together, to love him together, to put him first together, and to be used of him together, and then trust him 
with all the potential discomforts and inconveniences. You know, it's, it's really simple when we consider our own family structures. If we, were, if we were only to love our spouses and children when it was convenient, when it fit my schedule, when it worked out for me, what a mess our families would be. Now, maybe that's part of the reason families are in a mess these days. But no, love is a commitment 24-7, isn't it? It is, it is a commitment that we, that we might honor, prefer, and serve one another in the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the inconvenient, and the uncomfortable, and whatever. It's 24-7. And that just pales by, by way of how our love for the Lord should put the Lord first in everything in life. Why should it be any different with the Lord? Isn't it? Because the benefit with the Lord is that we can trust him with those things that we're afraid of, those inconveniences that we're, that we're concerned about, or those discomforts, or those potential uh, concerns. We can entrust them to him. Because if we put him first, he will, he will hold us up, won't, will he not? And that's the kind of faith that God wants us to de demonstrate as mothers and as fathers as well. The, the living with a priority of putting God first. And so woman of God lives first of all with that priority of putting the Lord first in all things in life. You know, I just, maybe some of you saw the video recently my wife shared it with me, um, of a young boy, young boy, I don't know if he was 10, 12 years old, preaching. And he was preaching on 2 Timothy 1.5, and it was, it was quite enlightening and encouraging. He's, the 2 Timothy 1.5 says, when I called to remember the genuine faith that is in you, that's Paul speaking to Timothy, who was a young man, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded in you also. Where did it dwell first? That was his point. Where did it dwell first? That faith that he had dwelt first in his parents. His, well, in this case, his mother and grandmother, and it was passed on to him. See, that's what Deuteronomy 6 is saying. Before we train our children, we lead by example, and we have that faith that we pass on to them. And that's why a woman of God lives with the priority of putting Christ first in, in her life. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, if you would. Next, please. Next passage. We've been going through 1 Peter on Wednesday nights, and I kind of passed over this portion in our study because I told the folks that I'm saving this, was saving this for Mother's Day. I don't know if that scared them or encouraged them, but um, we're going to take a look here at what God says to wives. That's how it begins, verse 1 of chapter 3, does it not? Let's go ahead and read here what God has to say here in this passage to women and wives. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughter you, you are, if you, do not, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. I think as this passage begins, what you really see here is, is there is a purpose to this passage. And the purpose mentioned here is winning over disobedient husbands, those that may, may not submit to the authority of God, whether this is referring to someone who is unsaved or a saved husband who is not walking with the Lord. There's a purpose here in this passage of, of a wise 
privilege and responsibility of winning over her husband to a walk with the Lord. And therefore, I think the, really the theme of the beginning of this passage is that the woman of God lives with purpose. There's a purpose in her marriage. And it is not, as we often think in our marriage, about the, all the benefit it get, brings me. It is about the purpose of ministering to my husband to lift them up. And that's what God's love does. Because love's, God's love gets beyond self. It gets beyond defending my turf, my ego, my rights, and my wants. Instead, seeks the best in another. And in this case, obviously, in marriage, it's for her husband. Now, we have to recognize, and this is kind of assumed here, that as Christian wives, we recognize that the best place our husband can be, and vice versa for husbands as well, is to be walking with the Lord. Because God is the author of life. He created life. He's written the instruction book on life. He's not only created us, he's redeemed us to new life. And he warns us that if we walk independent from him, it, it, life will be nothing more than disaster and destruction. And so we need to recognize that the best place for our spouses to be is to walk with the Lord. And when there is conflict in the marriage, it's because someone's not walking with the Lord. And we need to, instead of tear each other down, lift each other up and encouraging one, each other to look to the Lord to find the harmony in the home God intended. And that's what this is talking about, living with that purpose for, for the wife to lift up her husband to walk with the Lord. Now, submission here, which is mentioned, is one of those things God uses in this toolbox of lifting up the husband, of winning him over to the Lord. Uh, willing submission is one of the things God uses to, to accomplish that. Now, we know the word submission in a marriage is not popular today. And if you put a big poster up out in the street that says, Wives, submit to your husband. We're going to have a seminar this week about, you know, you're not going to have very many people show up, really, are you? You're going to have a lot of talk at the, at the cafe about the oppression of the men of that church. And that's because throughout history, men have, have abused their, their, their place as being head of the home. And in many cases, men have relegated women to a place of subservience and second-class citizen, and that's true in some of our cultures in this world yet today. That was never God's intention, is it? That's why down in verse 7, when he gives a note to the husbands, he tells them, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life. That's what God says. That's God's desire. Marriage is a partnership, not a dictatorship. And, and yet God has established a role. And you might say, well, why did God design it that way? If, if we're equal in marriage, and we are, we're, equal, we're equally one in Christ. Well, we know that submission is not subservience, but simply the role of women because of Eve's role in the curse, wasn't it? That's where God started all this. In chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate and gave to her husband and he ate. She influenced Adam in the wrong direction, didn't she? Adam believed the lie, followed, his, followed Eve, whichever the case may be. But according to Romans 5, 12, Adam's choice. Adam was re the responsible one who made the choice to bring sin into the world. And that's why 1 Timothy 2, 14 says Adam was was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. She fell into the, into the transgression. And that's why when people sometimes want to blame God for all the evil in the world, they forget the fact that Romans 5.12 says, but it's by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin. We're the one that's brought chaos of creation.
not God. He's rescuing us from that. But as a result of that, of Eve's role, part of the, part of the curse that, he, that was brought upon her because of her disobedience is stated in verse 16 where he says to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So God created that order after the fall that his husband should rule over her, possibly because of the chaos that sin brings to life's experience. God desired, de designed order in marriage. That's, all, that's, that's what submission is all about, is recognizing the responsibility of the man to lead and the wives to respect that leadership. But the context here in 1 Peter, where he encourages wives then to honor God's will, God's design, has a special meaning here because he says, even if some do not obey the word. And he's referring to maybe at times when submission may be difficult to an unruly husband. Imagine that. Husbands can become unruly. None of you men are looking up. Or if you do, you're glancing at me. Well, you know, when you consider the context, because it says here, wives likewise, in verse 1. Wives likewise, likewise. What's he talking about? Well, in this context, if you go back into chapter 2, God has been talking about this principle of submission to authority. A, a principle, a dynamic that he's established in many areas of life. And it started in verse 15, in, excuse me, verse 13, in submission to governmental authorities. In verse 18, he begins talking about the workplace, and then here he talks about marriage, and then but later in verse 8 of this chapter, chapter 3, he talks about submitting to one another in love, as the Bible instructs us, loving treatment towards one another even in conflict, not taking vengeance and all that kind of thing. And so subject, so submission is the subject in this, in this greater portion in this passage of Scripture, but it's even more than that. It's, it's to, it's submission in, in challenging times you know this idea of submitting to every ordinance of man for the lord's sake in verse 15 was written at a time of one of the most evil and oppressive rulers the world ever knew nero it was under that reign that realm that god told them to submit to governmental authorities rather than having his attitude while well, he's such an ungodly so-and-so that i don't have to listen to him no god's wants wanted a humble attitude of submission in verse 18, he mentions in submission to masters, today we'd say bosses, that we do not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. In marriage, it's to the disobedient to the Lord. In the one and others, it's the area of taking vengeance in conflict. And so what God is addressing is submission, not in the easy times, but in the challenging times, in the impossible times, in the difficult times, under harshness and oppression. And we're told here to, that we're called to this. Back in verse 21 of chapter 2, we're called to do so meekly, humbly, and patiently because we follow the example of the Lord Jesus. In verse 21, for to this you were called in chapter 2 because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. He suffered undeservedly more than anyone in history when he was, when he was wrongly arrested and prosecuted and put on the cross. And then God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And God says that's the example we're to follow for the sake of God's glory. But we also do so the way Jesus did it. When 
He says in verse 23, who when he was reviled did not revile and return, and when he suffered he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's how it's accomplished, by committing ourselves to him. All the potential oppression, harshness, mistreatment, and offenses, we just commit to him. We trust him because he is sovereign over our lives. He's got us, he's watching over us, and he doesn't want us to, to react wrongly in those situations, but to be, to be willing to be submissive, at least within the bounds of the morals and ethics of Scripture. Because submission is always is unto the Lord. And whenever any of these institutions or situations ask us to go beyond those morals or ethics, we need to be faithful to God first, don't we? Let's make sure we understand. Submission is first to God, and therefore it's within the realm of his morals and ethics. But, be, but within that, we are to be submit willingly and humbly, even if some do not obey the word. And that's God's special instruction here in 1 Peter chapter 3. To live with that purpose, that if you ha that the husband is disobedient to the Lord, maybe therefore impossible to live with, God says submit. Submit. Obviously within the bounds of his word, but submit. In order that you might win them over, because there's a greater purpose than our defending our turf, isn't, isn't there? And then when we do so in those situations, God is glorified. And people are influenced to the reality of Christ in us because we entrust ourselves to him. And then we entrust the source of the, of the offense to him as well. They're in his hands. And that's what a life of faith brings. And so a woman of God lives with priority. She lives with the purpose of winning over and lifting up her husband. You can't help but think of Proverbs 31, how how the wife in that chapter obviously made her husband a better man. She lifted him up. And lastly, we also see here the passion that God wants the woman of God to have. The woman of God is a passion, a passion for the Lord. In verse 2, it says, one way they're one, one of the tools is to observe the ch your chaste conduct accompanied with fear. You see, not only is a submissive spirit you used by God to win over your husband, also a chaste conduct. The word chaste means to be pure, free from defilement. It simply means to live what you believe, to live unhypocritically, to live consistently. And it's hard to point someone to the Lord when you don't walk with the Lord yourself. That's, that's pretty basic, isn't it? In fact, I think throughout the years in, in churches where churches have seen teenagers become rebellious, it's often because Christians are, are, are promoting a do-what-I-say-not-what-I-do mentality in their parenting. Well, we saw in Deuteronomy 6 that we're to lead them by example to, the, to a life of, lo of love for the Lord, of putting God first. And here we're to lead in a sense of our behavior, our conduct, as it says here. We are to have, ladies here are encouraged to have a chaste conduct, a pure conduct. And when she does that, it allows one's husband to see the reality of Christ in us. We're really showing them Jesus Christ, are we not? And when we do that, God is glorified and our husbands are won over by letting them see Christ in us. But we're told to do that here. The ladies are told to do that not only with, in a chaste conduct, but to be accompanied by fear. Now the word fear in the Bible isn't, in this, in this usage, isn't refer reference to being afraid. The word means often reverential awe or respect. And it's interesting, some very good Bible translations 
translate this word for fear, fear. Some translate it reverence, and some translate it respect, giving us an idea what the word means. It's a it's, it begins with a fear for the Lord. That's what the word reverence means. And if that's the proper interpretation, then this reverence here that the, w- the wife is to have is a, is a deep on respect towards God and his will. That's what that would mean before her husband. That even with him, to p- we are to put him first. Because there are times when ungodly husbands may ask the wives to be engaged in something that is unbiblical and wrong, and the wife has to be faithful to God first in reverence for God and say, you know, I have to draw the line here. That's what that would mean if that's the the right interpretation. Some versions use the word respectful, which would direct the respect towards the husband, indicating respect towards one husband as 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 a wife submits to her husband in honoring the Lord. And I'd like to offer that both may be in view here, if you prefer. I'm not chickening out and not giving you one or the other. But in reality, when a, when a person has a reverence for God and for his word and his will and, a deep re- and a deep, that deep fear of res- and respect of God, it will result in biblical behavior, in this case, respect for one's husband and his leadership in the home. Now that conduct also here includes living with a spiritual emphasis or spiritual priority. And he begins in the verses... Three and four, he addresses adornment, looks, appearance. You know, and, and you know, in times really, though they change, they never change. At these times, the, uh, the women of the culture put a lot of emphasis on appearance, much like there is today. Fashion, makeup, and everything that goes with it. And what God is saying here, he's not saying that adornment is wrong, it's just wrong when it's a priority. It's the the encouragement here is to not make it a priority. It's not about a prohibition. And and that's why the New King James inserts the word merely in this passage. Do not let your adornment be merely outward because there's a better adornment, isn't there? There's something greater, and that's the inner man. And he's really using this illustration to, to, to to make the point by way of contrast that the focus for the godly woman, the woman of God, in her, in her passion is to focus on the hidden person of the heart, the inner man, the inner life, the walk with Christ. That's what's important. And that's what husbands, children, others will quickly observe, where our, pri- where our priority is, where our passion is. And that adornment here he, he describes is un- incorruptible, by the way, beauty, which means that spiritual beauty never needs wrinkle cream, by the way. It's incorruptible. It is described as a gentle and quiet spirit here. Now, it's interesting. The word gentle means meekness. It's often translated in the Bible, meekness, meaning life is not about me. It's really a strength to honor others, to prefer others, to lift up others, to serve others. That's what meekness is. It's really a strength to not live for self and to live for God's glory in serving others. In fact, this term is used of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, where he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And so what this chaste conduct being described here is simply a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ in his meekness, in, not, in a living a life that's not about me. Instead, it is 
it is a life that is focused on the Lord and others, and it is quiet. It doesn't mean that we zip our lips. The word means tranquil in reality. Vines defines it this way. It's this tranquility rising from within. In other words, from within, there's a faith and trust in God and a rest in him that, that brings a contentment, a tranquility. You know, people are looking for a lot of ways to find their, their place in life, to get, that, to get, you know, to live, find their identity, become one with nature, to, you know, to get, you know, just to find some peace or rest and to find it so many different ways where God says it comes from the peace of God which passes all understanding. Jesus left his peace with us, and it's that tranquility of a trust in the Lord. And when, a, and, w- and when a wife or any of us put our focus on the hidden man of the heart, the inner man, and, and seek to reflect Christ, we find a deep contentment in that. In other words, a woman in a home with an unruly, disobedient husband can find tranquility when her trust is in the Lord, when her focus is on the inner man, and allowing the Spirit of Christ to produce that disposition of gentleness and peace, and God says here that is very precious. I think one Greek interlinear put it this way, it's of great worth. And so what we find here is this attitude, this, this chasteness, this respect, this focus on the inner man here of, of a gentle and quiet spirit is precious to God and incorruptible to you. And that's what God would develop in a woman of, in a woman of God. And that's inner beauty is going to do more to influence your husband towards God than anything else one can produce. And it's a tool God would use to win or influence one's husband towards the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you study marriage in the scripture, you find out that marriage is really ministry, isn't it? It's a commitment to lift one another up, to hold one another up, to love one another, in whatever situations we, we enter in life. Well, he goes on here and throws out an example. He says, for in this manner, verse 5, in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their husbands. Notice the two points he makes here in verse 5, these summary points. The godly women of old that he's referring to adorned themselves with submission to their own husbands. They had, a, they had in this manner an inner focus on an inner life, and they were submissive to their husbands, the two primary things we've seen in this passage. And then he points us to Sarah. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are. Now you can be thankful, ladies, that the Bible's not saying, thou shalt call call thy husband Lord. That wouldn't go over very well, would it? But it's a term of respect in the ancient Orient, a recognition of 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 his headship in the family that she expressed. And Let's turn over to Hebrews, if you would, to our third passage this morning. Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, because God here throws Sarah in front of us as an example of what it means to be a godly woman. And he gives us this example to follow. Let's pick it up here with her husband, Verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now just think about that. Now there was a wife who maybe had a comfortable home, had family, had friends, had her 
local tea parties, uh, you know, and maybe had a fancy Camelac under the tent of the garage and um, everything that went with it. And Adam says, let's, let's become nomads. Let's just leave it all behind. I mean, carry some of it with us, but let's go live in a tent. What do you say if your husband said, you know what? We're going to go somewhere. We're going to take a tent. I don't know where we're going, how long we're going to be gone, but however long it is, we're going to live in a tent. Now, that takes submission, doesn't it? That takes a recognition that God was leading her husband and a trust with God and whether... Whether she, she thought it was, the Bible doesn't tell us whether she thought it was God's will or not, but she went along. She followed him. By faith, verse 9, he dwelt in a land of promise in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For they w- he waited for the city with foundations, whose builders and maker is God. And so not, so not only did she willingly go with him as God led, believing God would lead, and they, she had an enduring faith. That's what you see in this portion underneath the terms of faith. Also, was an enduring faith. Because they waited. And 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 guess what? They never got there. Verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promise. But they saw them afar off. They were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They never got there. That was just the beginning of a journey, a long journey of a nation that God was establishing through Abraham. And they went willingly and blindly along. And that faith endured. And then we find in verse 11, Sarah brought up as then producing this miracle baby of her old age. By faith, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. She's probably 90 years old, well past childbearing years, and yet she, that they had been promised the seed, had they not, according to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And though she was, had her flaws, and she wasn't perfect, she's li- set before us an example of faith. At 90 years old, she bore a son that would be the seed of Israel, that would be the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ in reality, through whom God would bless the whole world because she trusted in God. And the key here, maybe to this, is that she judged him faithful who had promised. And that's this Old Testament saint that God lays before us in the person of Sarah, whose Peter tells us, daughters, you are if you're not afraid with any terror. What that simply means is that don't be afraid of the, of the potential risk because our trust is in God. And Sarah here was convinced that he was faithful. She judged him faithful who had promised. Boy, is that an attitude we could all use more of, isn't it? She judged him faithful. That means God keeps his word. What is what was he faithful to? His promise in Genesis, first given to them in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that God was going to make of them a great nation, that God had a land in store for them, God was going to bless the world through them. She judged him faithful. Though she never saw it fully, completely fulfilled. She judged him faithful. God keeps his word to his children. And that becomes the example that God lays before the women of 1 Peter 3 to encourage them to be faithful 
in their ministry to their husbands as, and to their families and to their children to entrust them to God. You know, so often we spend much of our lives thinking we can, we, we're the ones that protects our children, keeps them, preserves them, when it's really God. And she, trusts, she judged him faithful. He's going to keep his word. If he says, you follow me, I'm going to take care of the rest, she judged him faithful. He said, if you're going to leave all the comforts and conveniences, maybe medical facilities, who knows what all they left behind. He says, I'm going to take care of you. Because she judged him faithful, who promised. You know, these things, whether it's in Proverbs 31, in the, in the, in the balanced woman God sets before us, the woman... Our parents described in Deuteronomy 6 or 1 Peter 3. What we see here is a woman who leads by example. This, the, these women described here are, are leaders. No, they're not the head of the home, but they're leaders. And throughout Scripture, we find many examples of godly women who led by example, who steered their family in a healthy and godly direction. And that's a far cry from today's model of women who seeks independence and to be their own person and yet they don't realize that their true identity is found in being the woman God would have them to be. And what we see both here in Peter and Proverbs 31 is a godly woman is, is, is one who not only honors God in her priority, her passions, and her purpose, but one who lifts up her husband and has a husband who praises her. That was Proverbs 31, wasn't it? Recognizes her great contribution as they are heirs together in the grace of life. Her husband supports her and she supports him and God is glorified. This is God's model. This is how God is glorified and this is really the model that God has established to keep life sane. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for uh, these instructions you've given us, Father. Thank you for our mothers. Thank you for the ladies here who are mothers, Father. And Father, we re recognize that we all haven't always had good experiences in life, Father. But thank you that you do give us a model to return to, a model to base our life upon, that we might live as you intended us to live, that we might have quiet and peaceable lives, that we might have gone on an honoring life, that we might raise children that would, that would uh, rise up, Father, to do what is right and to be honorable and to be godly as well. And so we're thankful for these instructions and for our mothers. And Father, we pray that you would apply these things to our lives now for your glory. And as we turn to the Lord's table, the one who gave the ultimate example of sacrifice and service, may we honor him as we remember him together. In Jesus' name we pray.